This, uh, this last week, Renee and I um, were looking into a service that one of our kids needed that was pretty expensive. And as Renee was describing the details of what we would get and the cost, she quickly mentioned that the company offered a 100% money back guarantee if we were unsatisfied with the service. Um, and then we ended up paying for it. And it got me thinking uh, how commonplace it is for companies to offer a guarantee or a promise on whatever they're offering. It's almost become expected, right? As a consumer, um, I've got lots of options, and so I'm more likely to choose the product that comes with a guarantee. Back in 2009, I know some of you guys were in first grade then, um, Renee and I bought our first iPhones, the iPhone 3, and it was a really big deal to get an iPhone back then. We were totally breaking the bank to uh, buy a phone, and then also back then it was like, oh, and you have to pay for this data plan, which was extra on top of it. I think like a month after we bought these phones, Renee set her phone on top of the car as she was like getting things ready and then drove on the freeway with the iPhone on the roof. Um, at some point she realized it had fallen off, so then she got off the off ramp and circled back and got out and searched for the phone on the freeway. And of course it had been like run over a couple times, it was totally smashed. And so since she just brings it to the Apple store and is like, my husband's gonna be so mad at me, this is my phone, whatever. And of course they gave her a brand new phone. Um, Cause that's how it is at Apple. Maybe it's not like that today, but it was like that then. Um, and Apple, in fact, I used to work for the Apple store downtown Apple is one of the first retailers to have a dedicated group of people, the Genius Bar, whose sole purpose it was to fix broken technology that people brought in. If you asked a genius what they did, they would say that their job was, I don't know if it's like this today, that their job was relationship repair. Okay, the idea was that people's relationship with Apple had been compromised because of their broken device and it was a vital performance that it be made whole again. I'm not joking you. This is the language when I went through my training. <laughs> Apple is obviously one of the most wealthy and successful companies of all time. Um, they really set a new standard for the kind of guarantee that a company gives its customers. Now, I am super, if you know me, I'm super allergic to associating anything from the Bible with consumer culture, okay? But as it turns out, um, our passage this morning is about a guarantee, it's about a promise that God makes with the people and with us to bless them even though they have failed to measure up to his standard of holiness. Okay, God, God makes that promise. He's guaranteeing that his blessing will come through his holiness and not our holiness, which is really good news. And he illustrates this guarantee in Haggai chapter 2, through a really obscure law about a priest carrying a piece of holy meat in his robe, okay? The point is that a robe that becomes holy because of the meat can't then make something else holy. In the same way, when the people put their hands, remember the people in Israel are building this temple, when they put their hands to the obedient work of temple building, that doesn't make them holy. Likewise, our work doesn't make us holy. Instead, we need the unmerited grace of God. What we have to recognize 
is that often we would rather touch God's robe through our half-hearted obedience than touch God himself and his grace, which is why we often fail to fully experience God's blessing. Let me pray and then we'll jump into Haggai 2. God, we thank you this morning for the guarantee of salvation. We thank you for the guarantee that you will redeem and restore the broken pieces of our lives. We thank you for the guarantee that you will complete the work that you have begun in us in Jesus. God, we thank you for your gospel, for your church, for all of your fulfilled promises, many of which we fail to see every day. God, we confess this morning that we would rather associate ourselves with acts of holiness, with behaviors, rather than with you who makes us holy. We would rather touch your robe than have you. We, like the people in this passage, Father, are half-hearted. And so we ask that you would forgive us, that you would help us. God, would you make your uh, word living and active this morning? Would we, would we leave changed people that love you more? It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible or an electronic device um, that you didn't drop on the freeway that has the Bible on it, you can turn to Haggai chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 10. If you're just jumping in with us, we are in the third of four sermons that the prophet Haggai gives to the nation of Israel. It's the year 520 B.C., okay, 520 years before Jesus shows on the scene. It's 20 years after the nation has come home from Babylonian exile. If you remember, Haggai's first sermon is to call the people to obedient work of rebuilding the temple. He says, with gentleness and kindness, consider your ways. Do you not want God's presence to dwell in your midst? Is that not the most important thing to you? And so then the people go, yeah, that's right. We do need to build this temple. And they obey and they begin to work. Um, and this is every preacher's dream, by the way, that Haggai like gets up there, tells the people what to do, and they're like, yes, amen, pass the plate, let's do this. Uh, Dave and I dream about those things. But Haggai experienced it. People obeyed him. Then in the second sermon, Haggai acknowledges that part of the challenge of rebuilding the temple is that this new temple is so much smaller than the previous one. It's really uninspiring to them. Building this temple forces them to face the devastation and trauma of the temple's destruction 70 years earlier. Okay, so God says, be strong, work, fear not, I am with you. It's not important how big and grand the temple is. What's most important about the temple is that I, my presence is going to dwell within it. Okay, the people respond. They say, yes, that's good. They respond to the encouragement, continue in the work. Okay, and so we talked about how we like the nation of Israel, are also called to temple building. We're called to say yes to Christ's indwelling presence in our own temples, the temple of our body, inviting him in to heal, redeem, and restore. And then we are also invited to collectively build God's church together, to dream together about being a community who establishes the essence of Christ's plan to bring renewal to the whole earth 
right here in San Francisco to be the small signpost of the coming kingdom to the people of this city. And as we do that, we're obeying God, we're doing the work of building His temple, which is so beautiful, but it's not enough to make us holy. We can't start thinking that the work we're doing, the actual building, is the thing making us holy. That would be just touching the robe of Jesus, not the person of Jesus. Okay, and so I've broken this sermon into two parts. Okay, part one, robes and meat. Part two, crops and blessing. Okay, and it's going to make a little more sense as we go. Okay, let's talk about robes and meat for a little while. Let's jump into Haggai 2, starting in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. He says, go back and look at this law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests checked the law. They said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body, if that person touches any of these same things, do they become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Okay, so um, this is one of those passages that takes you a little bit of time to get your mind around. Okay, let me try to explain it. In the Old Testament law, there were priests who offered sacrifice, sacrifices to God on behalf of the people for their sins. So the people would bring an unblemished animal. The animal would be killed and consecrated so that the, the meat itself actually became holy so that it could take the place of the sins of the people. And then the priest was given permission then to eat some of that food, to eat some of that meat. Um, and then somewhere... I don't know how it worked, but somewhere in that process, I guess priests would carry the meat from one place to another in their robe. Okay, let's look at the specifics of this law in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 26 and 27. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting. So he doesn't leave the temple and go out and eat it. He stays there. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, okay? Like a robe. So if a robe touches the um, meat, it becomes holy. And when any of even the blood of the meat is splashed on the garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. Okay, so God, this is the law that God wants the priest to look back over. And then he poses the question in verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? In other words, can we transfer this holiness from the robe to something else? And the priest answered correctly and said, no. Okay, so God says, imagine that this priest puts the holy meat in the pocket of his robe to carry it to the place he eats it. Does that mean that his robe becomes like this magic garment that he can sort of pass around and use to touch a bunch of other food so that that other food becomes holy? holy? The answer is no. That's not how holiness gets transferred. In fact, God doesn't want that to be the case. 
To be sure, the priests had to wash their garments while they were still in the holy place, away from the people, and even change their clothes before coming into contact with others. We, we can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 19. It says, And when they, the priest, go out into the outer court to the people, they shall put off the garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers, and they shall put on other garments, lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. Everybody tracking with that? Maybe a little bit. I read it like a hundred times, so I don't know what it feels like to read it for the first time. Okay, um, God is saying that situation, it, the same is true for the work you're doing while you rebuild the temple. You're doing sacred, holy work. These stones that you're carrying around and stacking in the walls of the new temple will house God's presence. And so there's a kind of holiness about what you're doing, about what you're touching. But just because you are building a holy place doesn't mean you are becoming holy. Your work doesn't make you holy. I make you holy. That's the distinction. This, this little uh, story actually reminded me of one of my favorite stories in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus heals a woman. Uh, Matthew 9 20, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garments. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garments, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your what? Faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Okay, you can read that story and think that Jesus is just so holy that his robe is like magic so that anyone who just touches it is healed. Okay, but was it Jesus' garment that made her well? Was the power in his robe? No. It was Jesus himself. And she is healed through what? Her faith. It's a beautiful story of healing and salvation, but it's not because of a robe. It's because of Jesus. And so there's a danger for us, for those of us who follow Jesus, I'll call it robe-touching obedience. Okay? Robe-touching obedience is about the desire to associate myself with holiness through my behaviors without seeking a true holiness that only comes through grace by faith. We have to recognize that for us, holiness is not transferred through our work. Touching God's robe is not the same as touching God himself. Uh, Elizabeth Octemeyer, who, who wrote a great commentary on Haggai, said the ultimate danger of temple building and indeed of all works of religion, is the temptation to become self-righteous. To believe that association with the things of God automatically communicates moral purity, right judgment, unconquerable power. Okay, think about your life for a minute. What behaviors, practices, rituals, 
do you tend to rely on to prove yourself to God, to others, that you are holy? What evidence are you trying to stack to make the argument, look, I'm good, I'm okay before God, I'm a good person, I have value and worth. Perhaps some of these things are associated with the things of God, and they are potentially great things. Reading your Bible, going to church, worshiping, serving, giving, uh, as you go into the workplace, doing your work for the glory of God living as a missionary among your colleagues. These are all beautiful acts of obedience, but they're not enough to make you holy. Have you become overly reliant on those deeds to justify you before God? Here's how you know. One way to know. If you're doing that, you probably judge or look down on other Christians who don't do your same Christian behaviors or take up your same Christian causes. I don't think at Citizens, um, I don't think the big danger is us. I don't think a lot of us think that we can somehow earn our salvation with our good works. I think we're all pretty much like, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need grace. I don't think that's our struggle as much. But I do think we're hard on each other. I think we judge each other. I think we have self-righteousness. And I'm, I'm admitting that I'm chief of sinners in that. We talk a lot at our church about um, paying attention to the forces of culture that are influencing our experience of being followers of Jesus. Like, how am I being made more like a San Franciscan or a Californian or an American? What are those forces of a culture that are drawing me away from what God has for me? And I think one of the currents that's currently carrying us is self-righteousness and judgment. I think it's like a a secular form of self-righteousness and judgment, but it is growing where it's like, if you don't say the exact thing in the exact right way, you are the worst. Okay, so we have to be careful and, and be gracious among each other. Like, let it be that Jesus himself and the gospel is the only thing that needs to unify us together. Like, we can disagree on a lot of different things, but because we agree on Jesus and we experience the grace of Jesus together, that this is a judgment-free zone. Okay, we're almost done talking about robes and meat. Uh, While holiness is not transferred through a priest's robe, can't get holiness through the robe, sinfulness, though, does transfer super easily. Verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body, okay, somebody touches a dead body, if they go around touching everybody's food, does the food become unclean? And they're like, yes, (laughs) it does. Okay, I'm so glad that's there. Um, He says, you can't be made holy by the robe that touched the holy meat, but as someone who is unclean goes around touching things, those things become unclean. And, And guess what? God says that is actually what's happening with the people. Verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people 
And with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. God says, let me, let me ratchet this up a few notches, okay? Not only is the temple building you're doing not making you holy, instead, actually, everything you do is unclean. God is reminding them that at one time, as a nation, they were called to be set apart and be holy. Do you remember that? That's what God's intention was for the people of Israel. Okay, but you have now become defiled through your disobedience and it's spreading everywhere. Joyce Baldwin writes this, the nation had been defiled and everything it touched, including its offerings, became unclean. The ruined temple, a witness to sins of negligence, stood like a corpse in their midst. For Israel, there was no known remedy. The only hope lay in the free acceptance by God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading through Haggai, this whole situation feels a little confusing and disjointed to me. Okay? God comes along, tells the people they need to obey him by rebuilding the temple, and then as they're building, says, hey, make sure you don't think that your obedience is making you holy. Okay? It's a little bit of like a a quick change there of heart. Um, this is where I'd be saying to God, like, hey, what's the deal? Like, what gives? I'd be saying it back to him. Consider your ways, God. How's this good news again? Uh, it feels a little bit like the person at Apple who sells me my iPhone is like, hey, here's your iPhone. You're probably going to mess it up, but don't worry. Like, just come back and we will repair the relationship because you are the worst. Right? It feels a little bit that way to me. Um, so that's why we need to talk about crops and blessing. Okay, let's talk about crops and blessing. It turns out that God, his intention, his tone is the same as, as Haggai's, which is gentle and kind. His intention is to give them great news. He wants them and us to better understand his grace. It starts in verse 15. Look at the word choice. Now then, consider from this day onward. Do you recognize that word consider? Remember Haggai's first sermon opens with God calling the people to consider their ways. Now he switches it and says, consider my ways. Okay? He's saying, I want you to understand even more than you do about how this relationship works, how blessing works. He says, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? In other words, as you delayed the building of the temple, how did things go for you? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Now, remember that we know the exact date of each of these sermons. It's December 18th. It's two months after the last sermon. Okay? Now, sometime in mid-October, after Haggai's last message, came the rainy season. So every fall... The people waited until it had rained enough to make the soil soft so that they could plow the land and sow seeds. 
So that, you, that process usually wrapped up sometime in mid-December. Okay, so as Haggai is preaching to the people, literally they just finished planting all of their crops for the next year. God says, how has crop production been going all this time? Isn't it true that for years your crops have yielded only about 50% of what you hoped? Okay, that's what that, that section means. When you thought you would have a heap of 20 measures of grain, there were only 10. Okay, they only got half the amount that they hoped for. When you hoped for 50 measures of wine, there were only 20. God says, I actually know this was happening, and I was the one who let it happen. Your crops that yielded half the profit were emblematic of your half-hearted obedience to me. Your crop production put on display what was true in your heart. See what he's doing there? Let's stop and reflect on our own lives for a minute. What would God say to us this morning? Think of the things that you do that you consider acts of obedience to God. Regardless of whether you do or don't do those acts, what is your attitude while you do them? What does your face look like as you stack those stones on the walls of the new temple? When you serve the church with your gifts, when you give your money, when you serve the least of these with your time, are you, like the people, giving a half-hearted effort? Do you serve God begrudgingly or with joy? God says, if you do serve half-heartedly, you will always come up short in receiving my blessing. Unless, unless you realize that and admit that it's true and admit that you can't get out of this problem on your own. Yes, God, I am half-hearted. It is true and there's nothing I can do about it. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I tell myself to change my attitude, I just can't. I need your grace. God says, I let you experience half a harvest so that you will turn to me. And he says to the people, and by the way, you didn't turn to me. They had 20 years of that and they still didn't turn to him. It wasn't until God confronts them through Haggai that they finally listened to him. And he says, but you did, you listened. You obeyed. Your desire and willingness to build this temple shows me that you recognized your need for me. I'm reminding you through this law of the priest's robe that I'm not going around watching your every move as you build the temple, evaluating whether or not I will bless you with a full crop. I already know that on your best day, you are half-hearted and I'm promising to bless you in spite of that. I'm giving you a guarantee, the best kind, one full of grace, not with the snide tone of annoyed, an annoyed apple genius, but with the kind tone of a loving father. God says, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the nine month. Joyce Baldwin reflects and says, God's words, when he keeps mentioning the date, um, his words carry the precision of a legal document. 
He says, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. Right? They just put it in the ground. There's no guarantee whatsoever. He says, from this day on, I promise to bless you. Okay, he's bringing home this point where he says, holiness is not transferred through your work. Touching my robe is not the same as touching me. Robes and meat won't save you. Your works produced half a crop because you have half a heart. But I am telling you, next year will be different. Next year you will have a full harvest. And when you do, it will be because of my grace, not your works. And that is good news. I hope that's good news. This is just the good news of the gospel. That no matter how hard you try, you cannot earn God's favor and salvation of your own merit, of your own accord. It's a free gift of grace. Okay? And so then, when we think about pastoring citizens, we talk about this all the time in, in membership and in our learning cohorts and discipling environments where we say, like, we are never wanting to motivate the people of God with either law or shame. I grew up in the church where many pastors tried to use like rules. They just gave me a list of things to do to motivate me to obey Jesus. Or if they could make me feel bad enough about myself to obey Jesus. Okay? Law and shame. Okay? That's not what we want to do at this church. We want you to be only motivated to obey God because you've received grace, the unmerited favor of God and to show you how good that news is. Okay, and so what we have to do is say, your sin is a really big deal. Like you're really a sinner, and it's awful. But when we do that, to not communicate to you that you are utterly worthless. Don't hear me say that. You're a sinner, but still have such value. Okay, you can, take, you can make a total mess of your life, and still be a beloved image bearer of God. Okay? Satan worshipers, murderers, rapists bear God's image. Nothing should ever make them or you or anybody else feel ashamed of being human. Okay? That is Satan's work. And he's really good at it, by the way, to get people to hate themselves. And, when, and then when we say you have sinned, to hear you said you hate me and I'm worthless. That's not what we're saying. We're saying you have inherent value because you bear God's image. But you are a serious sinner. You have seriously rebelled against God. It's really bad. You deserve, because of your sin, to be eternally separated from God for it. It's a really tough pill to swallow. It's a really tough one to give you and for me to, in public, on a microphone in a park in San Francisco, say. But it's the truth. And if you can accept that about yourself, if you can see how bad your sin is, then you can begin to understand how beautiful and immeasurable the grace and love of God is, who says, I will give you unmerited grace. And the more that you understand that you are a sinner saved by grace, the more then you will be motivated to obey God, not so that he will love you, but because he already does love you. That is what the gospel is. That's why we call it good news. And guess what? In Christ, it's a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 
13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God says, you don't draw near to me, but I draw near to you. I make you holy. Not those stones you're using to build the temple. Not my robe. Me. Reach out your hand. Don't touch my robe. Grab hold of my hand. I will pull you out of sin and death. I will bless you and give you life and make you righteous. Will you reach out your hand for that today? If you never have, will you reach out for the first time and grab that grace? If you follow Jesus, but you have fallen into a trap of believing that your good works justify you, would you reach out for Jesus' hand? If you have started to judge other Christians and write your own law of the best kind of Christians do these things and say these things, would you reach out your hand for Jesus this morning? Let me pray. God, no human being would ever come up with this paradigm. No person would would invent a gospel structure like this. This is divine revelation from you. Because we manage all of our relationships through our behaviors, and we judge others by their behaviors constantly. And our relationships are broken because of it. They suffer because of it. And so we come this morning and we thank you and we praise you and we revere this truth and recognize that it is holy and sacred and from you. And we hear it and we go, yeah, that's right. I want that. That's what I want. And then tomorrow we'll wake up and we'll forget but you will pursue us again and show us your grace again. And for that, Father, we praise you. You are good and kind and your mercy is without end. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.